begin. One of the first things that we want to know when we think about human extinction or dramatic catastrophe is what are the chances? <laughs> uh, what are the things that could get us and how bad is it? Uh, this is a chart from a 2003 paper, American Political Science Review, on the distribution of wars. This takes a data set over a century and a half and uh, plots them on a log-log graph, graphing the uh, severity of the war, that is how many millions of people were killed on one axis. On the other axis, we're graphing a cumulative probability. So we're taking the number of wars, the percentages of the wars that are larger than that size. And of course, as we get to larger wars, the percentage goes down. What you can see is a nice line. Uh, there's a power law relationship, at least in this data, between the severity of war and the frequency. And that gives us some hope or expectation that we could get some idea of the chance of much bigger wars that we haven't seen. So when we can see a power law relationship like this, it gives us some hope of predicting the probability or the, the chance of seeing more catastrophic events. This is a collection of a number of papers that I look for describing power law relationships between various things that can go wrong and um, the severity of those events and the frequency. And as you can see, there's a large number of things that can go wrong that have been given power law descriptions. And I can classify them in two, two classes. So what you'll see in the uh, upper right-hand corner here is a graph. And this green line here is a power of one. And a power of one means that, uh, so if you say the, sever the severity, the over-expected value of a harm is how many people get hurt by how often it happens. And if we're on this green line, this, this, pro this, this product is the same all the way along the line. So for something with an alpha equals one, large events uh, happen less frequency, but that just exactly compensates for them being larger. So when we have alpha of greater than one, we have a line that looks like this. So basically, the smaller events here that happen more often have most of the harm in them. So most of the damage comes from many small events. If you have an alpha less than one, line looks like this, then most of the harm comes up here from a few very large events. And so on the left-hand side here, we have the kinds of things that are distributed like that, where most of the harm comes the, from the few largest events. So we'll, I'll call those black swan disasters in honor of Talib's book and concept. Epidemics, earthquakes, wars, these are things where most of the expected harm comes from the very largest events. So pause and understand that. It means if you're going to worry about any of these events at all, you could just ignore the entire category, but if you're going to worry about any of them, you should worry about the very biggest ones because most of the expected harm comes in the very biggest events. Um, and if you're looking at a history of recent such events and trying to estimate the you know, average severity of that kind of problem from the recent history, you will vastly underestimate it. And that's the basic black, black swan concept. You get it way wrong if you're just looking at how much, you know, how many people have been killed by war in the 20th century, for example. If you, you know, take that as the average rate at which war hurts people, you'll just be way off because we haven't seen the biggest events and those are the worst. Uh, in preparing or responding to disasters, we have a variety of trade-offs we make between responding to small disasters and responding to large disasters, that is, or preparing for small or large disasters. For example, um, to the extent 
that many countries have nukes, we'll probably prevent small wars. On the other hand, we'll make the bigger wars worse. Uh, in 9-11, uh, many people were told that their standard response to a fire warning was to stay where they were until they were told what to do, which is a fine warning <laughs> for small fires. For large fires, it turns out not to be the best thing. So if you're thinking about what advice to give people in dealing with a fire, if you think about the smallest events, the most frequent events, and what's best for them, you might miss the best average advice, which is across the whole entire category. Similarly, we prevent many small forest fires, and that ends up causing larger forest fires. Uh, in an earthquake, uh, the usual advice is if there's an earthquake, you know, get under a desk or in a doorway, and that's fine for the vast majority of earthquakes because they're small. That means a few things fall off the wall, a few things fall down, and if you're just away from things that fall down, you're fine. In a massive earthquake, that won't do at all. In a massive earthquake, everything's going to fall down and get crushed, and you want to be right next to something that's incompressible like a large file cabinet <laughs> because that's the best place in a large earthquake. And earthquakes are distributed this way, so uh, the usual advice uh, is not arguably not right for the worst disasters. Uh, similarly, uh, for infections, we uh, distribute antibiotics to stop lots of small infections, but we risk being able to prevent large infections or a large pandemic if the antibiotics don't work anymore. So arguably, just knowing this idea that disasters distributed by a power law, and for some of them, the largest ones have most of the expected harm, that advice right by itself tells you that uh, we might be making a mistake about whether we're preparing for the smallest ones or the largest ones. All right, so in this graph we have the war data, which I just showed you is this white line here, going from these wars kill, uh, now I've flipped the graphs here, so this is the severity of the event on this axis, and this is how frequent they are. So these are events that happen once every year, once every thousand years, once every million years. And so on average we have uh, one every two years we have a war that kills at least a thousand people. And say World War I killed maybe 10 million people every 50 years or so. And this is the data we have on wars, which is that nice line. Uh, for reference, I've also given some other data. Uh, earthquakes, these are the earthquakes over the last 500 years. And it's not a line. Even though the distribution of earthquake power in terms of the uh, energy in an earthquake is a nice power law, the distribution of number of people killed is not a power law. Uh, we also have some data that I could find on epidemics, but these are not really quite to the right scale because these are a distribution of number of people infected instead of killed and their projections from small populations up to the world, which aren't quite, isn't quite right, so you can just use it for some reference point. Uh, so wars aren't necessarily the worst thing that could happen. We don't really know, but I'm using it for a nice reference because at least we have some clean data on it. All right, so what we're most interested in is the worst things could happen. So those don't happen as often, and we don't have direct data on that. We just don't directly know how often those things happen for epidemics or earthquakes or wars or any of the other things we have. So we want this key question, how do we project this graph up until this region? So we know they can't kill more people than there are, so it's got to end there somewhere. But where exactly? Well, one simple way to do it is just project the line up until you hit the population, and boom, that's where it is. And if we do that, we can also take the difference between, you know, this is the number of people who died, and the remainder is the number of people who lied alive, and that's this line. And that gets the sharp cutoff here at 
10 to the minus 3, which says every year there's a 10 to the minus 3 chance of killing everybody in a war. Which isn't a little crazy. Is that crazy? You say, well, if every year we had a thousand chance of killing everybody, how could we have survived 10,000 years? Uh, now, of course, you could say this is only recent. Uh, we couldn't have had wars this large before. On the other hand, uh, we had a smaller population before. And in fact, uh, these curves make things worse for a smaller population, it seems. Now, so this could mean I've got the curve wrong. I projected it wrong because we got the wrong number here. But just to pause for a moment and say that's maybe not entirely crazy, let me uh, take a detour to uh, Fermi's question, uh, which is, out of a billion trillion planets in the uh, observable universe, why don't we see <laughs> a science fiction scenario or whatever of somebody out there taking it all and uh, taking over the universe? Uh, so a way of rephrasing that question is uh, what I've called the great filter. On one side at time, we had 10 to the 1, 21, 21 planets, and eventually we've got none of those. So somewhere, there's a factor of 10 to the 21 between there and here. So in time, as these planets moved along, they hit a filter, which only some of which them passed to evolve life, and then only some of them evolved perhaps multicellular life, and only a few perhaps evolved civilization, and none of them so far. I've gotten through this last filter, which I've drawn little uh, splashes, but uh, perhaps it's because they chose not to colonize or some other reason. But in any way, they didn't go there. And there's this key question. Uh, we're here now. How much of the filter are we past? There's a factor of at least 10 to the 21. If, of course, we're past 10 to the uh, 19, then we will only have a factor of 100 to go. But that's still a 99% chance of not getting through, which isn't very good. So maybe, in fact, the selection effect of we wouldn't be here unless we had gotten through means that we do underestimate the chance that things will go wrong. And in fact, we're facing a harder problem than we realize. But there's another way, though, of interpreting this. We could change this graph to this graph. So what have I done here? I've taken the same power law here, and I've projected over into this region, where only a small fraction of the population of the Earth is left, and saying as the severity of the event gets worse, uh, we get smaller and smaller fractions of the population left. You can think of this as different curves you could put here as describing different uh, kinds of or amounts of diversity in our ability to respond to whatever happens. So if whatever happens hits us all the same, and it's enough, it hits us all and we're all gone. If, it, if there's a diversity in how it hits us, then some of us will be hit more than others. And uh, the question is how many are left. So if I just extend the power law this way and go down, we might say, well, so these are getting worse and worse and worse. And now, in this region, these are sort of all equally bad, because we've killed almost everybody. But when we get down here, we might say this is especially bad, because eventually we kill off humanity, and that's especially bad. So the question is, how far down do we go? Now, we have some apparent data that uh, Polynesia and the New World were each colonized for, by about 70 people. And so you might think 70 people would be enough uh, as survivors to make it through. Of course, they were all in one place, and these might be spread out. So maybe you need it to be higher up here to get enough people all in one place. But this is the kind of thing you're looking at. But at least perhaps optimistically you say, well, then now we have only a one in a million chance every year of killing us all off in a war. Whew. Right? Except we just made this up, so we aren't, don't know. <laughs> right? Uh, so we have a history of uh, famous dramatic collapses, not entire destructions, but collapses of societies, uh, where big bad things apparently happened because uh, in a historical record there were a lot of people and then there weren't. 
a lot of people. There were a lot fewer people. And looking at the historical record, we've been very curious to wonder, well, what happened? <laughs> Why did suddenly everybody go? And there are a lot of different explanations for all these different historical events, but apparently uh, environmental perturbations are a common cause, that, that apparently at each of these events there was important environmental perturbations, changes in the rainfall, things like that. But there's also the phenomena that when you look at the environmental perturbations, it doesn't look big enough to cause the change you see. That is, you see perhaps, say, in the Mayan area, yes, rainfall went down, but did it go down so much as so up to emptied out all these cities? I mean, um, it doesn't quite add up. And so that introduces this concept of social collapse, which I'll rephrase as the wisdom of stairs. The reason to be careful when you walk up a flight of stairs is not that you might slip and have to retrace one step, but that you might slip one step and then another step and go all the way down the stairs and break your neck. Right? So similarly, uh, our society, when we slip down a step, we have a risk of slipping down another step, and that's a larger concern in a sense than the first little slip. So if you might imagine, in a society you're in, you can rely on a lot of institutions, a lot of social coordination to get things done, but if suddenly we're in a dramatic crisis, a lot of the institutions you rely on wouldn't be as reliable. So for example, uh, you might think you could rely on courts to enforce uh, theft, but if, for example, judges don't take bribes now, but when their life is on the line, maybe they do take a bribe, then somebody who's thinking of stealing will know that maybe they can get away with it more because they can use a bribe, and therefore, well, you having an investment, you might not invest as much because now somebody might steal it, and so on, various sorts of uh, social coordination breaks down. So social collapse is this idea that there's a disproportionate effect of of, of, of an impact on the society. So a small impact on society, a small perturbation, we can weather. We can, we can take it on the chin and uh, still be standing. But the bigger the impact, the more things go out of whack and the harder it is for us to deal with that. So the modern economy is an intricate, amazingly intricate coordination of this is produced there, which is delivered to here on the time, just in time for these people. Uh, you have many, many products for which there's only one supplier in the world because They've beaten out all their competitors, and if that supplier goes, then the rest of the world suddenly has to do without that thing. So any sort of disruption is going to produce various mismatches. It's going to hit some particular place in the world where they produce a particular kind of thing, and suddenly we're going to have to do with less of that. Uh, transportation and travel is disrupted. Uh, and so uh, the mere fact that we have this intricate coordination, this division of labor, means that we're more susceptible to uh, risk of disaster. And in fact, on the margin, maybe we want to encourage a little more diversity in our suppliers so that we can be more robust to a disaster. I think it's also important to realize that we lose some element of trust. Uh, a lot of the coordination we do together is uh, possible because we can rely on people to uh, want to preserve their reputation. So somebody might cheat you today, but then know they maybe they risk their, your business tomorrow and the next day, and that long horizon of future business is not makes it not worth cheating you today. If this is the big time and suddenly everything depends on surviving right now, that future horizon goes away and people are much more willing to betray you now to get what they need and that means you trust them less. And of course, in addition, vast inequality is produced in a situation like this. Some people are safe and some people aren't. Some people are, have their family members killed, others don't. And in the worst, Authorities know that there's the social collapse phenomenon. They know that if they tell you things are really bad, suddenly you won't coordinate as much, and they're afraid of telling you. 
They're afraid to admit how big th bad things are. They hope maybe it'll just slide past and then you will stay coordinating with each other. You'll keep doing what you were doing because you didn't realize how bad the problem was and then the problem won't be as bad. So they don't <laughs> want to admit how bad the problem is, but then you suspect they don't want to admit how bad the problem is. And now you will fear the worst because they're not telling you because uh, you don't think they're going to be honest and that makes it hard for people to find out just how bad the problem is. And that makes the coordination worse. All right, so if we add this idea of social collapse onto the graph I've been looking at, uh, we'll think of there being different power laws for the direct effect versus the ultimate effect. So it might be that the uh, disaster, be it a war or um, uh, earthquake or whatever, has this power law, but then as we get bigger and bigger events, the factor by which more people die because of the add-on effects goes up and up. And this is, I've added relatively minor social collapse effect here so that we have to have this uh, huge event before we even have a factor of two here. And if we project that out on out to here, you can see the threshold where humanity survives is enormously affected by even a modest social collapse factor because it projects all the way out here. So if you can somehow, of course, make society more re robust to social collapse, you could make obviously important differences here, but even more dramatic differences down here to whether humanity can survive. So when you're thinking about preventing some sort of problem, uh, some approaches are just to try to prevent all things. So we could just try to make everybody more peaceful, everybody less violent to prevent war, you know, make everybody a little more reluctant to go to war. And that's, in a sense, trying to prevent all wars on, at the same scale. Uh, or you could try to make society more robust to collapse, more diversity of sources, uh, more preparation for this kind of scenario, insurance of various sorts, uh, uniformly across all scales. Or you could try to target your efforts to the very largest events and, and differentially focus on those events because you're especially concerned about them, that is most of the harms up there, or especially concerned about extinction in particular. So if you're going to focus on the very largest events, social collapse is a really big lever there. And what are the kinds of things you want to do? Of course, some people will survive, but you'd like for them to all survive together in the same place rather than spread randomly across the earth. You'd like them to survive correlated, not only with each other, but with some resources that will help them live through the time. And you might even want to isolate these people from others who might uh, cause trouble. So that's what I would call a refuge, an attempt to create a correlation between where they survive with each other, with some resources and some protection, so that they can survive an event. And so in order to prevent human extinction, we might think of creating refuges for human extinction. Of course, uh, this is an old concept for other purposes. You know, in the Cold War, uh, everybody had their own basement and every city had their own uh, shelter to go to, and that's some, fallen somewhat out of use. But um, you might think of purposely creating refuges for the purpose specifically of protecting humanity. Of course, they also have the side effect of protecting other things in, in less worse scenarios. But if you're going to protect humanity from extinction, you want to focus on the scenario where this is the one refuge that survives. <laughs> so the scenario of being pivotal is this refuge is left, everything else is gone, can it make it? Because if there's others, then you don't have, this isn't, uh, survival doesn't depend on it. So you'd want, if this is the only one that survives, it's got to be a pretty bad, bad event. So you'll have to have enough resources to last you through that kind of event to wait before you come out of your refuge. Uh, and that may even mean your own air supply. Uh, you'll need to have a large enough population to have a viable population when you come out. So unfortunately, uh, two people may not be enough. <laughs> the Adam and Eve favorite story, 
probably doesn't work. Uh, you may need 70 or more people. That's a quite larger refuge. So, but of course, some sort of a artificial insemination would be great there, but it's hard to imagine how that could work in such a degraded environment. And then when they came out, the goal, of course, is to revive humanity. But they're just a very small group, and I have to give you the sad news that uh, they aren't going to uh, rebuild the computer industry immediately. <laughs> uh, the vast economy we have depends in large part on its size in order for the division of special labor and specialization. So no matter how hard smart they are or what manuals you give them, it's just not going to work to have 100, 100 people revive industry then. You'll be lucky to revive subsistence agriculture, and you may need to go back to hunting and gathering. But honestly, you're trying to protect humanity. A few thousand years of bringing us back up to our level is a small price to pay. <laughs> I think don't get too uh, greedy for quick revival. At least, you, at least we saved ourselves. Uh, which is non-trivial. All right. Uh, switch in topic for a moment. Uh, then I'll show you the connection. Uh, we are trying to estimate the chances of these various events, how se severe they are, and uh, what we can do about them. And these power laws gives us some idea, but they're a relatively weak way because we don't have good data on a lot of things. Uh, I'm known for developing what's called prediction markets, and I'm going to describe how prediction markets could help with these sorts of problems. So. We're familiar with lots of things out there in the world, be, be they bags of flour or bars of gold that people buy and sell that last for a while, and they're used as a price. How many uh, bags of gold for how many bar, bags of um, flour for how many bars of gold? Those prices fluctuate, as you all well know. They go up and they go down. And when they fluctuate up or down, they accumulate a set of people who are fascinated by that because they think, if I can figure out when it's going to go up, I can buy today and sell tomorrow and walk away with cash. Or if I can figure out when it's going to go down, I can sell today and buy tomorrow and walk away with cash. So this is just a money pump. If only I can figure out how to turn the knob, when it's going to go up, when it's going to go down. right? So they start to look. They say, does it go up on Mondays? Does it go down when the price of this other thing goes down or when it rains? And as they do that, they find patterns. And then they use them, and they make some money. But they make the pattern go away. So if they find that the price goes up on Monday and they buy on Sunday, then the price doesn't go up on Monday any, as much anymore. So these are called speculative markets, and these are called speculators, and uh, it's basically gambling. And <laughs> but they end up making these markets reflect a lot of information about the future price of this object, and so that it becomes very hard to predict the future price, given the prices you've seen so far and the other information you have. We can use this effect on purpose. We can make a piece of paper that says, pays $1 if Obama wins for the US presidential election. If we can get people to pay this piece of paper for money and see what sort of exchange rate they want, do they want two of one for three of the other, for example, which is the current price, uh, then we can use that to estimate the probability of the event we wrote on the piece of paper. So in this case, there's a two-thirds chance that Obama will win the US presidential election. That's what the betting markets are saying. And to be more explicit, these are today's prices from a place called Intrade on a variety of events of popular interest, including whether bird flu will show up in the US, whether there will be an enormous earthquake by the end of the year, whether the US is going to get rid of our ban on offshore oil drilling, whether a, one of the large US banks will go under by the end of the year, apparently 40 to 60 percent, uh, and a variety of other interesting and important topics that these betting markets give current estimates for. Now, my challenge to you is to look down this list of numbers and find one you disagree with. Find one you think is wrong. And then I ask you, well, if you think that number is wrong, you are invited to be paid to fix it. How? Well, if, for example, you think the number is too low, 
go and buy. And by buying, you will expect to make money because you think it's priced too low. And by buying, you will push the price up and correct it. And so the implicit claim here is that by not going and buying on these markets, you are implicitly accepting these estimates as reasonable, that you can't do better. And uh, this is a process that will, to the extent there's more money here available, it will attract people to this market to fix the estimates and produce good consensus estimates. And that's called prediction markets. And there's a, uh, several hundred companies at the moment experimenting with these markets internally to forecast sales and project completion dates, things like that. It's an exciting time. It's been doubling roughly every year for a couple of years now. Uh, question is, could we use these to deal with catastrophic risk? Now, that's a more challenging task, as Eliza mentioned earlier in his talk. Um, but let me list you some of the public record. We have maybe a dozen cases out there where we've had a prediction market. At the same time, we had some other institution estimating the same thing at the same time. Now, we didn't always be able to control the resources of how much different sides knew or who was participating. But in these comparisons so far, at least, the betting markets have beat the alternatives done as well in all the comparisons so far. So in opinion polls or forecasting sporting events, uh, such as racetrack odds or even the weather, uh, there's been a variety of cases where you've had a betting market or a speculative market forecasting something at the same time as something else, and the speculative market has beaten the other one. So that's a great track record. Of course, I don't expect it to continue forever, but uh, it means that these are good mechanisms for finding things out. So what can we do about disaster? Well, one thing we could think about is near misses. Now, see, the basic problem is if, if everybody dies, then nobody gets paid, right? So, you know, saying, well, uh, you know, here's a bet. If, uh, if the world isn't destroyed, I'll give you this much money. If the world is destroyed, I get this much. That doesn't work, right? Because <laughs> the world is destroyed, it doesn't work. But you can think about near misses, big events that don't destroy everything as an indicator of the things we should worry about. And we could bet on near misses. So we could even pick some particular kind of event and pay, you know, have an asset that pays money if there's so many people killed by this date of this kind of event. Um, and then we could you know, have the betting markets of sort tell us what the chance of wars or plagues or other things is. Uh, of course, you'd want these chances not to be too small, or that gets to be difficult to estimate. So uh, you'd want to pick things that had relatively high chances here. You could also estimate these chances conditional on various policies. So you, you can have betting markets say, given that we do the following things, say, given that we institute uh, a carbon tax globally, uh, will that change the chance of some particular outcome? Uh, unfortunately, this entire class of events suffers the death bet taboo, which I suffered uh, visibly or quite dramatically. I was the uh, uh, member on this uh, policy analysis market, which in 2003 was described as terrorism futures and immediately killed. Uh, which it wasn't going to be terrorism futures, but uh, that's not the topic of the talk today. <laughs> uh, so if you don't like that, you could go back to even weaker indicators, uh, some indication of number infected or things like that, or even earlier milestones in these processes and get forecasts of which kind of events are likely to happen. Uh, this makes it, of course, less useful because you're getting earlier in the process, but uh, maybe uh, the kind of thing you could do. But I was thinking about, well, how far could we go? How far could I use prediction markets to forecast real disasters? And so in the next slide, I'm going to explore that. And so that's the idea of refuge markets. So think about one of these refuges. Uh, imagine a refuge that we, we uh, fill it up with experts, of course, uh, who are going to be there. But we have some amateur slots. We have some places where amateurs can be in the refuge. And not only that, we're going to auction them off <laughs> so that you can buy a slot in an amateur. So we have, we're going to close these up for like you know six months or however long we close them up. And then you're in the refuge for that time, so we're locked down against a plague or something. And uh, so many days before that, uh, these tickets can change hands. And then you need so many days to get there to get in. 
And before that time, we can trade these things. And we can have a market in these refuge tickets. Um, of course, we'll see the price vary with time in the future. You know, there's one valid in 2010 and 2015 and 20. You can see, of course, when people expect these things to be valuable. In addition, you could trade them conditional on an, on an event that would be measured at this time before the thing. So for example, if there's a, a great shutdown in world trade, uh, you could say conditional in that situation, uh, I'd like a ticket, please. And maybe the price of that is much higher, and that's telling you people expect the ticket will be more valuable to them, i.e. they could avoid a disaster in the refuge in that sort of scenario. So now you can get markets to give you indications about which sort of scenarios they think at least are relatively more likely to produce an event where they would like to be in the refuge, please. Uh, and so the market give you a price for the uh, value of the ticket in that situation, which could give you an indication. So you could also, of course, just have a uh, ticket that pays off a dollar if that situation is true, and then you could separately estimate the uh, chance of getting in this scenario and then the value of having a refuge in that scenario. And such markets could then give you a distribution of different kinds of events, conditional on policies, et cetera, a full joint probability distribu distribution, if you like, over the kinds of disasters that could happen and the things you could do about them and how much those would lead to a scenario where you'd rather be in a refuge, please. Of course, you know, people would be free to make however many refuges they wanted, uh, but um, other refuges could be formed for other purposes that didn't sell amateur tickets, but uh, this would be at least one concept. I know it's speculative, but I was trying to come up with something that we could do because it's a really hard problem, honestly. So if you think about it, that's one of the hardest problems we face. We want to deal with this important, rare situation where we might all die. Uh, we need to make priority judgments about which of them are more likely, which of them are less likely, which of them are uh, severe and which of them are less severe. And we need to allocate resources to preventing the more severe ones, preferentially. And so we need a way to decide. And yes, you can have committees, and they can give you reports, and they can give you rankings. But as we all know, that's not a especially reliable process. And uh, especially on some of these disasters where people have a lot of emotional reactions that have been described here so far, cloud people's judgments. Uh, betting markets like this have a remarkable ability to cut through that crap and get people to give you uh, what they really think. Because, you know, again, if you're buying a refuge ticket, uh, you don't have one, and things go bad, then you're out the door. All right, so uh, that's the uh, basic talk, and I expected a lot of questions, so I left a lot of time here for questions. <laughs> <laughs>